Hi, and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations about issues emanating from psychiatry that impact society, as well as discuss societal issues that have potential implications for mental health and emotional well-being. My guests include thought leaders from both within the discipline of psychiatry and beyond. Beyond Madness is brought to you in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. So I was going to start out today's podcast with a statement that sex is central to existence. And then I came across an article that questioned whether humans actually need sex. And so maybe it's more of a question, although I would say that one should consider what your life might be like without sex. And, f- and for some, that might be a, a relief. In reality, though, I think it's a powerful force that animates not just humanity, but all that contribute to the life on our planet. Sex is also political. The World Association for Sexual Health issued the Declaration of Sexual Rights back in March 2014, although the work had started some years earlier. And that declaration specifically states that rights are fundamental to the attainment of health. And when one considers the World Health Organization's pronouncements on human rights – Rights and health certainly converge with a fundamental human right being the right to health, noting that sexual and reproductive rights are specifically cited. So it's not my specific intention to host a, a political conversation today, but it's, it's important to have an awareness of a broader political context because political ideology certainly impacts health behaviors. And so joining me for today's episode entitled Sexual Health and Psychiatry, I have Drs. Elna Rudolph and Franco Collin. Now, Elna is not a stranger to the podcast. She was a previous guest when we dealt with gender dysphoria, and she's a medical doctor and the founder and clinical head of My Sexual Health. She has a higher diploma in sexual health and HIV medicine through the Colleges of Medicine in South Africa, and she obtained a master's degree in sexual health through the University of Sydney in Australia. She's also a fellow of the European Committee for Sexual Medicine and is currently serving as the president of the World Association for Sexual Health, She's an executive board member and director of the South African Sexual Health Association, as well as being a member of the World Professional Association for Transgender Healthcare. Franco is a psychiatrist in private practice in Pretoria. He has a special interest in pharmacotherapy as well as psychotherapy. However, beyond his clinical involvement as a psychiatrist, he is no stranger to the media as a guest providing expert content on a range of issues related to psychiatry. In addition, Franco is a poet, having published works in Afrikaans and also an author, and he has a master's degree in creative writing. So, Elna and Franco, welcome. Nice to have you for today's episode of Beyond Madness. Elna, I'm going to kick off with you. I um, I was looking at uh, human sexuality as a departure point for today's episode, and I, I kind of was looking at various definitions of of, of sexuality. And the one I came across which sort of spoke to me most was that sexuality is not about who you have sex with or how often you have it. Sexuality is about your sexual feelings, thoughts, attractions, and behaviors towards other people. So quite a a, a comprehensive and multifaceted approach to human sexuality or certainly an, an understanding. Your thoughts on that, Elna? Yes, I love that definition. I think it is 
much more nuanced than the typical kind of definition that a doctor would have about sex and sexuality. You know, we typically look at it in terms of disease and dysfunction. And over time, thankfully, we've stopped calling the gender spectrum uh, a disease. And, you know, we, we have evolved a lot as doctors. But what I think we often do is we just look at numbers when it comes to sexuality and think, you know, if you're not having sex three times a week, that there's something wrong with you. Or if you are not a woman having sex uh, where a penis goes into a vagina with a man, then you are abnormal. And and all of those things have been absolutely refuted. It is a much, much broader definition. So I think that that's, where we really wanted to start it out was just to provide that kind of overarching context. And obviously sexuality changes across the lifespan. It's not a static uh, entity or, or, or phenomenon. Um, it, it, I mean, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, you know, sexuality is such a broad term and uh, – it's not always clear what we are talking about. I right. think today we're not talking about biological sex. We're not talking about gender and we're not even talking about in, um, um, orientation. We are talking about how people play. Right. Um, uh, and, you know, because that is where the fun part comes in, where what is really near and dear to a person really comes into play. And I also, again, from a disease model, see that – when you're struggling to play in the way that you would like to play, whether that would mean with a person of the same sex or whether it means involving something that other people would deem a fetish and might frown upon mm. or, you know, you've got some kind of yum that other people are yucking. Yes. Those kind of things are the things that's really close to people's hearts. Actually, I see because I talk to people about sex every day, the whole day, you know, and it's not typically these categories and stuff that people want to push them into, but actually very, very personal. Well, I think we'll probably get into those aspects because I think that, you know, sex is not, I mean, as much as it's about play, let, let me get into to, to, to another question for you, which is the function of sex. And I came across yes. some very interesting uh, information in, in, in relation to that, looking at some Spanish data. Um, and, and it's very interesting how it kind of bifurcates male versus female. But if I were to say to you, Elna, what is the function of sex? What would your immediate response be? Because I've, I've got the, the data which I'm going to quote, but I'd like to hear what your thoughts are in advance. <laughs> Look, my answer is political. Ah, and, okay. Uh, so sex is sex yes. is political. Exactly what I said oh, at, sex at the is beginning. Very political. Right. Very, very political. But you'll probably be surprised that the answer, the political answer to that, is pleasure. Right. Well, you know what's quite interesting is that when looking at function of sex and how it bifurcates, men or males, mostly males, would say pleasure, but mostly women would say procreation. But the majority would say emotional intimacy to satisfy the need to love and be loved. So I think as much as one has this kind of, is it for procreation or pleasure? There's something much more fundamental to sex, the act of sex and, and, and sexual uh, uh, activity and its emotional intimacy. I'm not sure what you would say there, but certainly it cuts across males and females where that is actually seen as a very important function of sex. I think the new data that we're starting to see now is that intimacy is actually pleasure. Right. So many people can experience lots of pleasure from non-intimate kind of interactions, but uh, I agree with you fully. And that's the data is starting to show that now that, that 
one of the big determining factors of pleasure is actually intimacy. Right. So one of the issues, and, and I suppose it speaks to where I was kind of starting out, where, you know, is sex central to existence? What I have understood and read, certainly in terms of data, because we're very data-driven, but also opinion, is that it, it is fundamental to wellness. Whether it's central to existence, it's certainly fundamental to, to, to wellness. And, and that sexual satisfaction contributes to higher quality of life and longevity. Your thoughts on that? Yeah. No, certainly. But, you know, like any other things that we as doctors look at from an epidemiological perspective, as a group, humanity uh, finds it essential to well-being, etc. But there are people who live asexual lives yes. and who are fully well, you know. So um, we don't we don't think it's a drive, um, but more a choice. And yes. you know that's a very nuanced uh, conversation. Yes. But yes, in, essentially, if you look at it from an epidemiological perspective, then um, it is essential to well-being. Well, certainly the whole issue of, of being asexual certainly does not necessarily prejudice your well-being or your life if that is your inclination or, or, or that is your choice. Nothing I've ever seen suggests that. But the one thing I, I did come across, and which was kind of surprising to me maybe because I've never really thought too much about it, is the extent of reported sexual problems. They quote figures of something like 38% among sexually active men and 22% of sexually active women. I'm not sure what your experience has been. Obviously, you work with it all the time. So, you know, one maybe gets a, a, a more biased uh, uh, view. But, I mean, those those seem like particularly high numbers. Yeah, and, and global data will differ, and we don't have great data from the whole of Africa, but you do look at around one in five to one in three. And it also obviously depends on whether you're doing a point analysis or if you're talking over the lifespan. Right. So something else that sort of caught my eye, and I found it kind of alarming in a sense, is the extent to which sperm count is declining globally. I'm not sure if you've come across that data, but they're suggesting a, a decline of something like just over 60% across. Uh, that I, I, I haven't seen that data, but I know that they are very worried about this and that it is probably due to the endocrine disruptors, uh, as, as far as I gather from the experts uh, in that field. Yeah, so I mean that to me came as a surprise together with – the World Health Organization's figures on infertility coming in at about mm. just under 20%. And that's across high income and low and middle income countries. So it's kind of like a cross. And, and when they're talking about infertility, they're talking about an inability to conceive a child after one year of regular unprotected sex. So I, I take that together with falling sperm counts. And I mean, it looks like uh, the human race is facing some kind of a crisis in the, uh, in the near term. In terms of population, I think that uh, the population will probably survive this because <laughs> we have such a strong, you know, it, it, the, well, it will. I don't think it's the worst thing that can happen to the globe if we have a decrease in population. But of course, on an individual level, yes. struggling with infertility is devastating, absolutely devastating. And one, from a sexual health perspective, one of the big reasons for that is. Uh, uh, STIs right. and that you have a rate. Sexually transmitted infections. Yeah. 
Yes, one would think that, you know, in this modern day and age, we have been able to uh, uh, kind of get enough messaging across to get people to protect themselves. But I was just talking to my receptionist now. Yes. We've got this super affluent patient who just picked up his third STI in the last six months. Right. You know, and now I'm talking about this is not due to poor socioeconomic circumstances or anything like that. It is just so prevalent that people are picking it up at a high rate. This guy tests himself regularly, so that's why we're also picking it up. Right. But, uh, you know, that is very prevalent. I am worried about sexual dysfunction in men yes. causing this this secondary hypogonadism, you know, where they lose their testosterone, they lose their interest in sex right. in general, and that is a big concern in terms of fertility for me in my clinical practice. Well, certainly you mentioned testosterone, and there's another piece of data that I came across, quite recent data, looking at declining testosterone levels among adolescent and young adult men in the United States. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's yeah. my next question because I'm going to bring Franco in here. But, I mean, your sense of, of, of this uh, uh, phenomenon. So we've got this infertility. We've got uh, uh, slowered sperm counts. I don't know if it's connected to the lower testosterone, but what is going on? Yes, I think endocrine disruptors do play a role there. And another thing that plays a role is the massive rise in obesity in America. Okay. And you get these kids, teenagers that are already um, obese, and that is an endocrine disorder right. that then also plays into their testosterone. So it certainly is an indicator of poor health. And right. low testosterone in the long run has cardiovascular consequences, yes. for instance. And we actually think that it's associated with prostate cancer, low testosterone. So okay. we are very concerned about that. And of course, men also get osteoporosis as a result of, of, yes. of, of low testosterone. So, yep. I mean, the, the, the low testosterone is something that one needs to keep an eye on. But I, I, I'm really curious and interested in, in, in the correlation between that and obesity because nowhere in this particular article where they start talking about uh, acquiring an understanding of the etiology, do they bring that into the equation? And I think that uh, is probably quite profound, actually, Elna. Maybe it's my ignorance, but um, <laughs> I, yeah, you know, I mean, I deal with testosterone literally on a daily basis. At all our international conferences, we right. talk about what's happening in testosterone and uh, insulin and testosterone are, di are directly linked. Even things like ferritin, you know, that's an um, inflammation marker. As ferritin goes up, insulin goes, uh, uh, testosterone goes down. Right. So, I think it's just a sign. It's, it's like part of the metabolic syndrome. Right. We, I think in the next five or ten years, we will consider that as part of the metabolic syndrome. Okay. So that is, that is something to keep an eye on. So, so Franco, just coming into psychiatry and, and, and issues of, of mood and suicidality, there seems to be a link between testosterone. I'm not sure if you're aware or, or, or how affair you are with that, but certainly I've, I've come across, you know, literature looking at the link between testosterone and mood problems and suicidality. So I don't know what your thoughts are there. Well, it, it, it's a fundamental thing. I think your brain as a man is very much dependent on having circulating testosterone. You've got hormonal receptors in your brain, mineralocortico receptors and testosterone receptors. So it, it really does play a role. On one level, it's biological. And on another level, it is the downstream effect of the declining sexuality and the impact as a psychosocial stressor right. on your mood. 
Okay. Um, so it's it's a double onslaught. Not only does it hit the brain, but it hits the brain via the stress caused by the dysfunction that that follows from the testosterone deficiency. And then, because then then they start using the testosterone. Well, that's what I wanted to come to. This whole issue uh-huh. of testosterone therapy. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, Adam, you know, androgen deficiency of the aging male. Right. Um, we 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 now. In in practice, when when a person is above the age of forty, and I think we should probably go lower, right. we, we sometimes, when it's relevant to the case, we do testosterone levels. It's yes. a difficult thing to interpret, and you've got to uh, take it at the right time and everything. Alna can 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 comment about that. Yes, um, but then they go for the injections. Right. And the point about it is, it's not. It is not supra physiological. It should be physiological. It should be replacement. Not yes. obviously going to the gym right. and then having all the, the, the testosterone uh, injected. By the way, that is another little epidemic um, in the gym. I've recently, I've now I'm an active virgin. I've gone to Virgin Active, so yes. uh, I consider myself an active, <laughs> an active virgin. virgin. Okay. Uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Not very virginal, but active virgin. None the way. Um, and uh, the point being that you see these hypertrophied uh, guys walking around there and they all have this reddish complexion with vein, uh, venous engorgement. It's, it's a very typical kind of uh, physiognomy right. that you can see with these guys. That's, that is another story. So, yes, it does play a massive role in mood and I believe anxiety disorders um, as well. And, um, and I was, and I was reading about, uh, which is really quite interesting to me because we're going to do an, an episode on self harm, but certainly the use of testosterone therapy in men has been linked with increased suicidality, increased mood disorders and increased self harm. So I think that, um, you know, one has to be aware that when you want to undergo testosterone therapy this is it, it's got to be about replacement for what is deficient as yes. opposed to adding what is already there in yes. order to enhance because i think that's where yes. we that's where we have a problem and i think we have to look at that you know across the board in psychiatry because i mean the same with psychostimulants and trying to enhance your cognitive capacity and your sharpness and and your alertness where you're trying to add uh, a functionality mm. To an essentially normal system, and what are the consequences? So I think we need to be very so. So, with other words, the the non-ADD system. Correct. Uh, you know, if you do suffer from ADD and it's been proven, yep. then it's fantastic to take a stimulant. Yep. If you don't, then it is exactly that yes. stimulating. Correct. It's, it's overstimulating, and it has all the effects that you've mentioned. So the same applies to testosterone. And remember that the, the link to homicidal aggression yes. in uh, supra-physiological doses of testosterone. With, with other words, for people to understand that term, you have a level that everyone should have. Now we add on top of that to get big muscles and big this and big that. And uh, then they get murderously aggressive. And, uh, and not only that, they suppress the endogenous production of testosterone, which then leads to testicular atrophy. That's and right. So with other words, all dressed up, nowhere to go. You've got these <laughs> wonderful muscles, but you basically your libido's gone, gone, your function's gone. You've got testicular atrophy, and it it it, it doesn't easily return if it ever does. And that there lies the rub, I think, uh, yes. with with testosterone therapy. Well, I think what's very important is that we're issuing a very specific cautionary. You know, it's 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 one thing to compensate for a deficiency; it's another thing to add 
to an existing level that would be regarded as normal in order to enhance functionality. You may, in fact, do the opposite. And I think that's really the message that I'm I'm taking home. So I wanted to just get to… Types of sexuality, because I know, Elna, we were just speaking about sexuality broadly. But when I look at the various sort of types of sexuality, we've mentioned asexuality, but obviously heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, those seem to be the sort of broad categories. But I wanted to make a specific commentary in terms of sexuality and mental health. And I think certainly within the South African context, there are issues around social acceptance prejudice, stigma, and we have in South Africa this phenomenon of corrective rape, which I needed to put on the table because, I mean, obviously that's a major contributor to mental health issues. So I just wanted to touch on the sort of social aspects of, of, of sexuality and, and mental health. And maybe, Frank, I'll start with you, and then, Elna, you can, you can jump in. Well, Chris, it's a well-known fact that the LGBTQ plus um, population yes. or group, whatever, whatever you want to call them, social uh, grouping um, has way way higher levels of mental health problems than than the average, and it starts with the development that is clearly not what I call the factory setting. Right. The factory setting is straight, you know, heterosexual. That's yes. the factory setting. Right. And then everyone grows up, and then the churches participate, and the schools participate, and this kid, whatever direction, transsexual, gay, whatever, lesbian. They develop in against this over, uh, overpowering rejection, uh, shame, and, and, and they, they, there's no adequate guidance uh, or coming out so that they can be guided. There are obviously notable exceptions to what I'm saying now yes. in many places, but it's usually in your upper class environment where that starts happening. Then the, 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 the sexuality starts developing and begins to show itself at, on adolescence. Activity kicks in, your identity kicks in. And say, for instance, you start showing as a man, you start showing a feminine identity, yes. or shall we say feminine, a feminine type uh, traits. And then it leads to further stigmatization or you begin to show interest in your own sex. And then that, that is all part of it. That leads to incredible stigma. And then on top of that, we've got the HIV crisis, which uh, labeled this, you know, it's the scourge that was sent to, to clear the world of gay people, which right. is absolute nonsense because now it's got nothing to do with your orientation. Anyone can get it. So it really is a build-up, a build-up, a build-up, and we know that these early childhood traumas mm. predispose to severe mental illness. Right. And so um, I, that, that is now a given, that, you know, that, that if you have these constant traumas, that you will have a higher chance of developing depression uh, and anxiety disorders. Elna, your comments? Yes, exactly what Franco said. And then I think... The problem with our society, and there are many societies like that across the globe, is that our answer to a very real problem is violence. Mm. Like what you alluded to with the corrective rape, corrective you know, rape, that yes. you think that something violent will actually sort out this problem. And, um, Franco is saying it in a, in a, like a jokingly matter to say the, the manner, I mean, the factory setting. Yes. Yes. Because, um, you know, then people think if you, you're not on the factory setting, there's something wrong with you and we need to make that right. And in the name of the church, in the name of all kinds of things, people will then 
often act violently and abusive towards this person. It might be physical violence like rape. It might be physical violence like actually, you know, um, hitting a child. Mm. And you would, you won't believe how often I get this statement by parents, normal parents that I get to do with in my daily life, not in my practice, yeah. that will tell me, well, if my child is gay, I will just hit it out of them. Literally, you know. So our thinking in South Africa is that violence is the answer to a problem. So in the first instance, it's not a problem. Society that is an unsafe place for these queer people is what the problem is, not the person themselves. And violence is certainly not the answer. Certainly, I mean, I'm going back many years when I was doing predominantly adolescent psychiatry besides eating disorders. And I would encounter youngsters who were really struggling with their own homosexuality. And, I, I, I you know, it, it, it was a question of how to bring them to self-acceptance because they had their own prejudices towards homosexuality. So it was almost kind of like they were – it was a, it's what I would call an yeah. egodystonic homosexuality. They were not comfortable with it and, and – or oh, exactly. So these were homophobic homosexuals. Yeah. And I found this, I, you know, it, it, it was really yes. difficult for them to find their place. But ultimately, in time, they were able to have the kind of conversations which you're referring to with their parents, with their peers, and establish their place in the societal fabric and to gain acceptance. But it's, it started really with self-acceptance, where they were able to say, this is what I am. I've got to own it, and I need to find my place, but I need to have conversations with my immediate circle because I think a lot of the difficulty were the parent-child issues to start with. Then there were religious and cultural aspects which one had to contend with, and these are very real and very powerful. And I think that um, you know, it, it was particularly in, in this instance that I'm thinking back to satisfying to see this person come into their own, so to speak, and – you know, this wasn't a question of you've got major depression. I'm going to treat you with an antidepressant. This was more, more why are you miserable? Yeah. Yeah. Why are you sad? What is the context of your mood problem? And coming from a background of adolescent psychiatry, I was always very big. Everybody would, would know. My first word is what, it, or my first question was what is the context of this person's emotional state? And so we explored, we explored, we found, and eventually I said, well, listen, you've got prejudice against homosexuality, but that is what you are. And that's okay. Let's work through this and let's see how we get you to be where you should be. So I think it's about having mature discussions, and those are not always possible under the circumstances. But certainly the point I wanted to make was that there's a link between sexuality and, 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 and mental health, and one needs to be sensitive to that and aware of that and find appropriate ways of actually navigating through that to get to the point where the person can just be without imposing on anybody else without prejudicing anybody else, but just enable them to be. So I want to go to psychiatry specifically, Franco, and something in my distant memory tells me that you had an interest in psychoanalysis. Would that be right? <laughs> I know. Oh, yes, okay. but this is many, many years ago. I've Have you? Oh, my word. Of that disease. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You've, you had psych... You... But Chris, psycho, psychoanalysis... Is a, is a very interesting. Yes, uh, it, it's very strong yes. in literature, by the way. If you're interested in literature and liter literature inter the interpretive aspects of literature, but uh, psychoanalysis is a very right. interesting tool to look at development. 
and, and, and that is there. However, as a practiced psychotherapist, okay. so not for uh, you. Uh, no, 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 no. No, it's way, way more directive than that. I am, I am very much not the analysis. analyst. But I wanted to, I wanted to link uh, sex no, and no, psychiatry specifically, and I had to go to Freud because uh, I, because I think Sigmund Freud was very uh, uh, much about libidinous urges, which initially were about sex, but then ultimately became more about a general life instinct. Um, he sort of moved be beyond that. But what I find interesting mm -hmm. about Freud, and obviously just going back to, to Freud, I mean, it was all about the repression of libidinous urges, which – Repression, which Victorian, led to pathology, Victorian and so for him it was like a central yes. theme in terms of of, of mm -hmm. intervention. Doesn't matter who he saw, there were obviously mm -hmm. libidinal issues. But I think he moved beyond mm -hmm. that. But I think what's interesting about Freud is that just to remind people, he was a neurologist, and that even even by his own yes. uh, 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 statements, he he actually understood that there was a biology to a lot of what he was trying to describe. And I'm I'm going to quote him where he said, "We must recollect that our." Provisional ideas in psychology will presumably someday be based on an organic substructure. So I think that Freud himself was actually a bit of a neuropsychiatrist as much as he was a neurologist and seen as the father of psychoanalysis. Chris, Freud, Freud, was, Freud was just yes. speaking the language of his time. Um, with other words, the, the, the prevailing scientific attitude towards things as as hidden and controlled and and remember this was the time when electricity yes. developed and magnetism was studied so um as as a parallel to those development in the sciences it's a lot of this kind of yes. electrical energy you have the word energy the flow of energy the early early uh, physicists that started looking at all of these things they they uh, without knowing it i think he he, he basically uh, borrowed a well, lot of his terminology from that but you are perfectly correct. He said, one yes. day, all of this will be replaced once we can understand how the brain works. He was, and I think he we was have very, very clear about that, which is, by the way, not what his psychoanalyst no, no, I think, disciples now. I think it's gone way they, beyond they what Freud had anticipated and how he understood things. And he was very much a product of his time. I mean, he used the technology that was at his disposal to try yes. to understand phenomena. And he yes. understood his own limitations, which I think people don't necessarily always fully appreciate um, that he was actually very biologically driven. He just didn't have the tools to kind of confirm what he suspected. No, the language and the tools and everything there. Absolutely. 100%. And Chris and Wanman also yeah. in terms of psychoanalysis and Freud, remember it was a big thing in psychiatry. Yes. The DSM two, two was a, was a, this is our classification for people that don't know that, that we classify psychiatric illness in, we look at how you diagnose it. And in the DSM-2, it was still very much neurosis and hysterical this and hysterical that. And all of that was removed by the, 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 the Western American, yes. in, in the West of America, Nancy Andreasen and those people and Spitzer, Robert Spitzer, these people said, no, 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 this is not it. We have to look at I'm, phenomenology going back to. I'm going to come back to the DSM and homosexuality because I think there's a history there that we just need to kind of put on the table and we need to, yes. as, as psychiatry, just kind of look yes. at our history there. But I, I, I'll come to that. So the, the, the bigger question for me is in psychiatric practice, the extent to which sexual functioning yeah. is part of a routine history. And I think that there is a tendency not to go there 
by psychiatrists specifically or for patients to specifically declare. It's kind of almost under the radar. It's present, but it's not kind of front of, 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 of mind. What are, what are your thoughts? Because, yeah. Chris, the way, the, the, the way I understand it, it's all right. about choosing your right. time, your timing. So if the, if the bank manager presents with a serious major depressive disorder, it's not really unless he, he intimates that there's something in the sexual sphere that plays a role in the development, right. as you rightly put, the context. Then you would certainly explore that. But in a, in a standard major depressive disorder, my, uh, my daughter died or yes. my wife died in, of COVID, that is not right. time to do that. So you've got to build the relationship and then as you go along and you start introducing the antidepressants especially yes. the serotoninergic antidepressants and you don't warn them about the libido and the orgasm and everything there that can be affected by these drugs then you you begin to introduce the topic if yes. you find it relevant if you find it relevant but there must be a time when you actually just yeah. say how are things there and then go through you know, your your phases of sexuality, your erectile function, your interpersonal sexual expression, the relationship, everything. Um, then you begin to explore. And you will pretty soon pick up yeah. that the person is amenable, will allow you to do that, or not, not ready, it's not really important. And then maybe sometimes you, you make a note and you say, but yes. why? Why is it not? No problem. So I think, but I think what you're saying is very important because it could be understood that psychiatrists prefer not to go there. But I think, and, 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 but that may be the case no, for some who true. may feel that they don't have the competency or they might feel embarrassed or other things are far more important. And I think in a sense, that's almost what you're saying. You're saying, listen, you need to have the right moment where that then comes to the surface because there may be other things that are far more important at this point in time. And then as we get into it, things may, may open up. Elna, I'll, I'll mm. bring you in here because obviously, you know, sexual mm. health and, and, and sexual medicine is, is something that you deal with all the time. What's your sense of that? Obviously, you're not a psychiatrist, but I'm just curious. Yeah, no, but my my challenge for every psychiatrist across the globe and actually every healthcare provider is that for any patient with any medical condition, the easiest way to help that person to deal with something that is so personal and so fundamental to their well-being is for you as the more powerful person in the room to actually take up the responsibility to put it on the table. Right. And I fully agree. Of course, you know, my wife just died of COVID. Then we're not going to ask about your erections. Of course not. But um, actually, as a sexual health provider, I think it's a good thing to just put on the table very early on to say – People with depression often have problems in the bedroom. Yes. How about you? Right. Okay. So if, it, if there's already an opportunity to talk about it, then you can say, how about you? Because that's an open-ended question. Then they can say, no, I am fine. Yes. And they are often not fine. But that means that in the next consultation, which is actually what you want as a clinician, because, you know, when they start talking about sex, it's going to be an hour. So um, you actually want them to make a specific appointment to talk about sex. But then you've at least just put it on the table. So this is something that any healthcare provider can ask any person with any chronic condition. A person with hypertension often have problems in the bedroom. How about you? Yes. Okay. But the... The more evidence-based way to do it is to follow this process of care, 
saying that, if you don't mind me asking, are you sexually active? And in South Africa, I don't think it's the correct context to say with yourself or other people. That's what they suggest internationally, but I think that will put off most of our people. So I just Thank ask, um, look, people see me for sex health. So, um, yes, so they come to you specifically, yes. Yes. As a psychiatrist, you will probably already know whether they're sexually active because they're in a relationship. But just because they're in a relationship doesn't mean that they're sexually active. So my suggestion would be that quite soon, within the first one or two or three consultations, to just go and say, if you don't mind me, are you sexually active? Um, and then if they say yes or no, if they say no, then you ask, is it by choice? Right. If they then say yes, then you say, okay, great. Um, if there's any, ever anything regarding sex that you would like to discuss with me, I'm always open to talk to you about it. The if they say yes, they're sexually active, you can ask them, do you experience any challenges with your sexual health or pleasure? So right. that's now the political aspect to bring in the pleasure <laughs> because, you know, people might still have good for instance, a woman might be able to have sex, but it's actually painful or she's right. coerced into it or right. something like that. You know, so if you go from a dysfunction perspective, you miss a lot of the issues. So just say, if you ever have any problem or are you experiencing? And then if the person says, yes, you can say, how can I help? Or I can refer you. You do right. not need to be able to deal with every sexual problem. Um, just sending them to the right person already makes that patient feel like you are a great doctor because you sent them in the right direction. And I think that's very important, actually, that psychiatrists, you know, because if you look at the DSM-5, you would swear that we deal with all of the sexual dysfunctions as a matter of course. Yeah. Whereas in reality, and I think… patients think you do. Correct. And I think that… Really what one we're say, what we're saying is we need to identify what the source of the problem might be and refer accordingly and to work in a multidisciplinary way. But I think the, the, the issue that's being raised ultimately for me, starting back with Freud and libidinous urges, is the issue of libido just in terms of the history taking because we generally ask about libido, which could be within the context of any range of, 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 of conditions, but certainly the mood disorders. And we know with depression, libido is obviously negatively affected. The converse is that with ma with mania, it can mania. be it can be in exactly the opposite direction. Yeah. So I think that you know, for us, the 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 symptom or asking about libido is a, is a very important sort of entry point. So without putting sexuality directly on the map, you're kind of just taking it as a symptom and you're noting it, Franco, and then Elna. Well, absolutely. You, you brought it in that in, in uh, mania, it's, it's excessive and it can be incredibly destructive. Yes. People that are not, not habitually acting out sexually will suddenly start acting out sexually. Funnily enough, it is not that frequent that you find the sexuality going up, but you find these individuals in which it specifically yes. goes up when they go manic. Yeah, so it can be very, very destructive. Well, it's about and, that. And this, so, sorry, for, just, just to say, Frank, I mean, it, it's about disinhibition and lack of social yeah. awareness. Yeah, it, it, and, and the disinhibition in, in mania then cuts across everything. Yes. Social action, aggression, spending money, impulsive decisions, etc. You know, it's not just sexuality. So you're perfectly correct that it is the uh, impulsiveness yes. that goes with the sexuality that, that leads to, to problems. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the other in interesting topic um, that, that I thought, and, and it, it really bugs me, and it, I often find myself at a loss for words, is the concept of sex addiction? Ah, which, no, I want to. Close. I want. I want to come to that. Yes. And, and, and no, we can. We can actually jump there because at the end of the day, 
Sex addiction yeah. is not in the DSM-5. Yeah. I mean, there are, yeah. te- there are 10 substances and there's one non-substance uh, related disorder, which yeah. is gambling. But sex addiction is not there. And I was going to ask Elna, and Franco, you've raised the subject now, so let's go there. Can, can I just pass a few no, comments? No, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the concept of the addiction to, to sexuality, I don't know how you can get addicted to a normal feeling or, or to, you can be disinhibited, yes, and you can have excessive behavior, yes, but you can't really get addicted. Sure, there are biological equivalents, you know, the, the addiction model, uh, Nora Volkov, etc., people that really study addiction and have developed models, but the, the, the patients often arrive where the wife caught the husband looking at pornography. And then that's another, that it's that's quite, another topic that I want to jump another into. Another topic. Yes. But then, then she says, okay, but now I'm going to check your computer. And she says, okay, the history says he was stupid enough not to delete his history. Um, it's, it's the last six months. It's been, now you have to go to a group where you are going to be treated for your addiction. Right. And then again, the context when you look at it is that in the relationship, the sex has gone down. The pleasure, I love the word, Alma, it's beautiful. The pleasure has gone down. There is, in fact, no pleasure whatsoever. There's a power struggle going on. And now the wife hits what I feel is actually normal sexuality. She starts hitting it and calling it sex addiction. Um, If you really look at people that behave excessively, um, then there are, is a subgroup. Certainly there is yep. a subgroup with excessive sexuality and they can be identified by the destructive consequences of their behavior relating to sexuality. But, but that, that links very closely um, but is to it, the manic thing and the impulsiveness and the disinhibition. Yeah. I mean, we, ha- we have the excessive drive with very clearly demarcated pathology. So we say, Bipolar illness, manic phase. Also, those who are intellectually impaired may also be, you know, disinhibited. Brain injuries. Absolutely. So there, so, so there we have this excessive disinhibited socially inappropriate sexuality, but it's associated with something very specific. This idea of sex, you know, sexual addiction. Elna, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'd love to hear. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the spot, Elna. Look, it's, con- it's contentious and I have good friends. On either side of the debate, okay? Right. So, um, and I'm certainly not an expert on this, but my sense is that it's more helpful to call it out of control sexual behavior right. because that is what the, the individual that suffers from it has a sense that their sexual behavior is out of control. So it's not a moral judgment that we make. Uh, the person feels it's out of control and yes, then they often run into trouble. What I would like to link this to is actually the libido conversation that we were having. And that is when we are in relationships. Well, let me first put it like this. Any sexual activity, it does not matter what the frequency, the intensity, the craziness of it is. If it is consensual with people that are able to give consent, of course, so therefore animals and that can never be consensual, um, it's perfectly fine. If a person is having sex seven times a day with other people that consent to it and so they it. don't feel that it's out of control, it's perfectly fine. Yeah. Okay. But most of the time, and especially in the way that I deal with it, it's in the context of a long-term loving relationship. So I think the more useful way to ask people about libido is actually to say, in your relationship, is there a desire discrepancy? Mm-hmm. Desire discrepancy. Because what we do is we pathologize the person with a low libido. And maybe it's not pathological. No. Maybe they are perfectly fine. 
with having their low libido. You know, so for instance, in the depression, the fact that they don't have a libido in their depression isn't a problem for them themselves because they don't feel like doing anything anyway. So they certainly don't want to be having sex. And the fact that their partner is wanting the sex is putting a lot of pressure on them. For me to then now go and further pathologize them and saying, yes, you better get your act together. You should be giving your partner more sex is really not helpful for that person. So that relationship has a problem and that is a desire discrepancy. Yes. And how can we as clinicians help this couple with their desire discrepancy? And it doesn't necessarily mean that the one with the low libido in the old sense yes. of the word needs to up their game. It might mean that the person with the high libido actually, you know, starts jogging or uh, whatever conventional monogamy is an option or whatever else it is, which is very seldom a good option uh, in my clinical experience because it causes relationship issues. But anyway, um, so we, the desire discrepancy is the issue. And when it comes to the sex addiction things, it's usually also a desire discrepancy that causes the problem. Well, I think that's very interesting. And I think that gives it a, a much more, uh, real, useful feel actually where you're starting to look at relationships and you're looking at discrepancies in terms of needs, desires, wants, etc. So just coming back to the DSM-5 because we, we threw sexual addiction in, but it's not in the DSM-5, so I think it's important to mention that it isn't. So it's not a thing that we would diagnose as psychiatrists based on our diagnostic and statistical manual. But I had wanted to touch on this issue of the DSM and homosexuality because I think yeah. it's important just to get a historical perspective that going back to the DSM-1 in 1952 um, you know, homosexuality was, was seen as a, as a problem as what they would call a sociopathic personality disturbance. That's, that's kind of where it started out. Evolving to DSM-2 in 1968, they were still seeing it as a kind of a sexual deviation, and they were starting to talk about sexual orientation disturbance where there was same-sex attraction, but there was some discomfort that the person experienced. Into DSM-3, then they introduced ego-dystonic homosexuality. Ego-dystonic. Correct, mm-hmm. in 1980, and it was only in 1987 with the revised version of DSM-3, that homosexuality was taken out altogether. So, but through a, a lot of political agitation. Absolutely. So when, I, so when I talk about sex is political, this is the political action that oh, yes. actually oh, yes. got it out. Because the LGBTQ community got together and they enlisted gay psychiatrists right. and these guys uh, banded together and they made – presentations to the DSM committees yes. that looked at these things, yeah. and it was slowly, slowly uh, depathologized, right. which is, uh, I think, a profound moment in psychiatry, looking at itself and being critical of itself, saying, guys, we got it wrong. Yeah, This is not what it is about. Um, I think one of the fascinating – so one no. of the fascinating arguments yeah. was that if – it's about somebody feeling uncomfortable with themselves then equals a pathology. They were arguing, well, if you're short and you feel uncomfortable with yourself, do you suffer from a mental illness? Um, you know, ego dystonic height. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Heightism or whatever you might or, want to call it. Absolutely. And, which, which is, is nonsensical. It is absolutely nonsensical because the ego dystonicity actually is born out of societal pressure and exactly. rejection. Well, and it's internalized homophobia. Correct. That is the problem. And not that's the ego dystonicity. That's what we were talking about 
earlier. But uh-huh. in, in fact, exactly. it was only in 1990 that the World Health Organization removed homosexuality from the ICD-10. We're now ICD. with ICD-11. So I think that what one can right. see is that this is these are fairly recent developments given the span of, of, yeah. of, of history. So I just wanted to put that in there as a historical footnote to kind of link psychiatry and homosexuality and the history that psychiatry uh-huh. has with homosexuality and how it was understood. Elna, you wanted to jump in? So the reason why it went into a disease model in the first place was to keep people out of jail. Right, because, because it was I mean, illegal. You know what's happening in Uganda at the moment, which is absolutely, it's so worrying. But so, you know, not too long ago in many countries, being homosexual would end would would make you end up in jail. So therefore, there was a very strong drive to get it into the DSM-5 for people, or actually to get it into disease categories for two reasons. The one is to get people out of jail, and the other one is for funding purposes. So for instance, there is higher mental health needs often in uh, people that are queer, so they can access better mental health care because there's a disease code that you can put um, next to it. But that is why at the World Association for Sexual Health, we worked closely with WHO now for a long time to have sexual health codes in ICD so that we do not have to have a psychiatric diagnosis to get a person access to funding. And this is much more relevant in the trans community where they have very real long-term health needs, you know. So it needs to have a a, a medical classification code, but not a pathological code. Well, I think the important thing is to take it out of psychiatry. And so, you know, where we don't pathologize on the basis of. So I think that was an important development. But, of course, uh, Franco, coming back to DSM-5, there are all the paraphilic disorders. And these are the ones where we have disorders of sexual arousal that are related to certain urges, behaviors, fantasies that are actually problematic. And, you know, we have things like voyeuristic disorder, exhibitionistic disorder. There's a whole range of them. And my question is, are these disorders or are these criminal behavior? Because, I mean, if you're exposing, I mean, you know, so this for me is like the, the question because I'm also looking at the treatment because if you are diagnosed mm-hmm. with a condition, then therefore you should be treated. And I don't know, what, I don't know what the outcomes well, well, are. And that includes, the big, by the, the way, pedophilic disorder, which also comes I in. I was about to say. Yes. That's the big daddy. The big daddy or the big child yes. uh, is, is pedophilia because uh, it, I love what, what Elna said, the consensual thing. You can see that there's to to a large extent, yes. there's this non-consensual thing that often turns people on both with the exhibitionism and the voyeurism. The definition the exhibitionist wants to trap his, his victim and see the shock and the excitement and they get off sexually on the shock and the excitement or the upset look of the victim, usually a woman, um, and that is what turns them on. So, so is it is it is it criminal behavior? Well, Chris, the, the whole point is does does it everything uh, rests in the brain? Yes. And can we then go and say that there's a brain abnormality? And there there are progressive studies looking at um, different deviations, abnormalities, things there in the brain. So it it Chris, it's it's one of those political. Deserts, you know that 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 it, it's it's a. I don't know the answer. No, to no, your question. nor do I. So I'm just kind but, of posing it. But I would say they, one thing: it's predominantly males, yeah. by the way. Predominantly males. Oh yes, oh yes. No, no. You can, especially in sadomasochism. Yes. Uh, there, there, there is a, a feminine component sometimes. Absolutely. There. But they, then one wonders. Yeah. 
one wonders, is it in response the male. to the male desires yes. and, and the female being coerced in so that the male, again, yeah, it is, it is largely a male. So, I mean, for example, fetishistic disorder, transvestic disorder, these are conditions where it's just the individual. No, it's got nothing it's to do with anybody else. And so uh, they. Now we're talking, now we're talking clothes. We're talking correct. identity. Yes. We're talking so, the, the sexual meaning of, of non-human sub-objects. Yes. Things like clothes, so, shoes and things like that. These are innocuous. I have correct. seen people presenting to me, one guy, who got into a PVC bag. He was turned on by black PVC plastic. And he hmm. bought himself a big bag and he would masturbate in the bag. I've also seen a case of infantilism. Infantilism where they have big cots and big bottles and big nappies. And again, why did they come to me? Their children are getting older. They're scared of being trapped. But the wife and he sorts this out and they have fun and they play and they have pleasure. And But it's just the children now, Dr. Ho. I said, no, but you handle the children, not your not your play, not yes. your pleasure. And and so they never came back. I think I solved the problem in one session, I hope. <laughs> you hope. Um, you haven't had a comeback yet. <laughs> the kids may still come back to you with their own problems as a consequence of what they've seen. So, yes. But there again, don't look through the keyhole. Because you never know what you're going to see. So I think there is a kind of a distinction between, you know, when, when we look yeah. at these paraphilic disorders, between those that are about non-consensual intrusion into other people's yes. uh, uh, lives and, and, and those that don't affect anybody else and it's just your own or, thing. Or those that cause damage. And uh, if, you look at, if you look at the literature and you want to go up, I mean, there are like more than 500 different fetishes that have been described. Uh, but they don't all reach the diagnostic level so listen and and so i i just got the i just got the five finger signal from my producer which means (laughs) that we're down to the last five minutes so there are a couple of topics that i i wanted to to touch on but i don't know that we're going to be able to drill down into them but i think that in terms of psychiatry and sexuality the whole issue of sexual side effects in terms of medication one does need to be aware of specifically with the antidepressants and with some of the antipsychotics so antipsychotics yes so let's just take that as a given, which people need to be aware of. Mm. There have been various other uh, you know, involvements of psychiatry with abortion, sterilization, gender reassignment surgery. So there are roles mm. that psychiatrists play outside of psychiatry involving yeah. sexuality. The role of sexual abuse is something which increasingly, this, this whole issue of trauma and subsequent pathology from personality to dissociative yep. disorders, uh, somatic symptom and disorders, mood and anxiety. Mood yes. and anxiety. So all mm. of these things connect sexuality and, and psychiatry. But I want to touch on for me what is a hot button issue, which is pornography. Because yeah. I think that this for me is a, is a, is a concern specifically because of the online availability of certain types of pornography to young people who are getting their first exposure to sexuality in this way. Now, Elna, I wanted to ask you, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. Have you ever heard of gonzo pornography? <laughs> yes, I am at least a sexologist. <laughs> exactly. So I just <laughs> never heard of it. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, I mean, the, I came across this. I was busy reading Gabor Mate's book, uh, The Myth of Normal, and I came across it, and, and it was being written about, and this is hardcore body-punishing sex, and they were talking about the first age of exposure on average is 11. And the concerns that have been expressed by many experts, what is this doing to sexuality in terms of how young people understand what sexuality is? Elna. 
Look, I cannot tell you how concerned I am about this. I think one of the big reasons for me to spend a lot of my time in a voluntary political role is specifically around the protection of children, being a right. mother myself. And um, we are extremely concerned about the impact of this. I mean, people have moral and religious worries about it, but as a society, and we know what the, I explained to my own children the other day, because I read that kids are exposed to porn at five, you know, there was a lot of it um, in the media recently, so yes. my three and five-year-old were told what pornography is. I told them is sometimes people make videos or take photos of naked people, um, but fray, you know, in Afrikaans we use fray, the word yeah. fray, like yes. French kissing and that, because, I mean, they're too little to really understand, um, you know, they don't have the concept of sex yet. But anyway, and I said to them that if small children look at those kind of images, it causes brain damage. And it mm. actually does. There's evidence about that and about the way that it predisposes them to acting violent later in life, yes. but also to anxiety, depression, and, and other psychiatric conditions. It certainly predisposes them to early sexual debut, which we know has dire consequences on many levels. And again, yes. I'm not saying this as a, you know, just moral Christian mom. I'm no. saying this from an academic perspective. You know, I think it's, so it's, 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 we are very worried about it. It's kind of beyond morality because when i mean i mean there's obviously yeah. that component but we're seeing yes. the destructive consequences for the developing Absolutely. child adolescent moving into adulthood and that is a real concern because ultimately that brings mental health problems franco chris, chris what 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 really hits me between the eyes is how exposure to pornography um, influences expectations yes. of what is normal and what I should expect one day when I have sex with my girlfriend for the first time and then later into marriage. Because it's everything, it's always six to nine inches. It's double D. Yeah. Um, it is, it's having a penetrative sex for three quarters of an hour, not understanding that the actors are taking a break after 10 minutes, every 10 minutes. Um, it, it's this kind of thing. And it, it shapes people's sexuality. Yep. Um, in adulthood, because I deal with adults, so it, 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 how what they expect, and you know that the husband says comes to me and says, but but my wife is abnormal because she's not moaning and screaming. Uh, it's, it's a, that that is something that you gleaned right out of uh, Pornhub. So you I, know, that's that's. So I think this whole issue of sexuality and mental health we see in, in pornography how that potentially distorts, disturbs, and actually, you know, undermines yep. well-being. Yep. So I, th I think, you know, this is not just about morality. This is also about clinical reality in terms of what the impact is. There was one other topic that I wanted to bring up, which could be a, a, a whole episode on its own, and that is sexual relations with patients. Because at the HPCSA, the Ooh. Health Professionals Council of South Africa, <laughs> yep, um, some of the major complaints are around sexual inappropriateness between doctors and patients and psychiatrists are not immune to that. So we're not no. going to have a chance to discuss it, but it comes down to a boundary issue. It's not acceptable. It should not happen. And one has to be very, very wary. So we've come to the end, and I wanted to thank you both, Elna and Franco, for just taking the time, and certainly time has flown, and sharing your expertise and thoughts. And I'm going to close with a quote from Freud, who showed that he did have a little bit of a sense of humor, where he said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> so there we have it. Thank you very much. This has been Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. 
Remember, there is no health without mental health, and until next time, take care.